Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, 8 billion and counting. As the world's population hits a record high, we speak exclusively to the director of the United Nations Population Division, John Wilmer. It's official. As of the 15th of November 2022, the world's population has risen above 8 billion people. That's more than three times the number on Earth in 1950, when there were just 2.5 billion people. And the UN Population Division says this is just the beginning, and the number of people on the planet will continue to grow for decades to come. Life expectancy is set to increase to an average of 77.2 years by 2050. Peak population will be reached around 2080, when there will be some 10.4 billion of us. Now, those are the global figures, but there are some real regional variations. The UNPD's report expects that more than half of population growth by 2050 will come from just eight countries. The Democratic Republic of Congo, Egypt, Ethiopia, India, Nigeria, Pakistan, the Philippines and Tanzania. And it also warns that as fertility rates fall, the world's going to get older. By 2050, 16% of the world's population will be over 65. That's up from 10% today. Those are the figures, but what's the story behind them? I'm joined now from New York by the director of the United Nations Population Division, John Wilmoth. Good to see you. Thanks for, for coming on the programme. Now, let's talk about this 8 billion number because it's being billed as a real milestone for humanity. But as big as it is, it seems that population growth is actually slowing, isn't it? Globally, the growth has been slowing down. It's a gradual process that's been taking place over the last many decades. And uh, in 2020 was the first time uh, since 1950 that, when, that we've had growth that was slower than 1% per year. Uh, so that's it's a slowdown that's taking place gradually over time, and we expect that to continue until the world's population uh, ceases to grow later in this century. What would you say are the main influencing factors that, that can contribute towards population growth? Well, in, in most countries, growth occurs because there's an excess in the number of births uh, over the number of deaths. There are other countries where growth happens because of migration or where it's driven primarily by migration, but that's a rarer circumstance that normally growth occurs because more people are being born than are dying and and that happens because um, essentially it happens because we've reduced the death rate around the world we've um, improved child survival in particular uh, in, in all countries of the world this is a you know universal change that we've improved survival and more people survive to your know, children survive to re the reproductive ages and then they have more children of their own and that drives growth as well. Uh, but it's the reduction of mortality worldwide. It's essentially a, a human success story that, that is behind this growth of the human population. But when, when the death rate comes down, then populations eventually also reduce the, the birth rate and that then brings the population growth more into balance. That, that tends to happen, but it, there's a lag in between and during that lag, between the reduction of the death rate and the reduction of the birth rate, uh, there's a period of rapid population growth that takes place. And this has been going on all across the world. It's not just uh, in the rich countries. The growth has gone through, we've, all countries have gone through this process or are going through this process of what we call the demographic transition towards longer lives and smaller families. And in between, in the course of that process, there's a period of rapid growth 
And so for the world as a whole, we're still going through that process and the world is still growing. The global population is still growing. I do want to talk about that longer life expectancy in a moment, but let, let's come back to the growth slowing, because if we're living longer and there is less child mortality, how does that add up? In, in many countries uh, now, the, the, the birth rate, the fertility rate, that's to say the number of births per woman over a lifetime has fallen below 2.1 births per woman. Uh, and that's the level at which a, a population would achieve zero growth over the long run. If that's maintained for a long period of time, 2.1 births per woman in a population with low mortality, that produces zero growth in the long run. So now we're in a situation where more than half of the world's population is living in countries where the fertility rate has fallen below that threshold of 2.1. So that means that the, the long-term tendency in those countries is for the population to start decreasing eventually if, if the birth rate stays at that level, uh, at the fertility rate, below 2.1 births per woman. If it's maintained at that level, those countries will eventually start decreasing in size, and some of them already have started decreasing. So the, the future is, is probably one of at least modest decrease of populations, and that's already occurring in some countries, and we expect that it will occur globally by the end of the century. Let's talk about the countries where we've seen growth spurts, because you know, more than half of the projected population spurts by um, the time global population peaks are going to be felt in just eight countries. I I is that a concern? Well, in some ways it is, if you consider that most of the growth moving forward will occur in, the, in, in countries that are um, relatively poor, uh, with fewer resources to accommodate the increased population and to, uh, you know, to have the resources to expand the school systems and the healthcare systems to, uh, to welcome these, these new, new residents, new citizens of their countries, let's say, most of them born there, uh, that's what's driving the growth in most of those countries is, is, is the births that are occurring there but to to accommodate that growth, you need to expand the school system, for example, and uh, and the healthcare system, and and everything else that that is needed to uh, recruit the next generation successfully, to to raise them as successful, productive human beings who can contribute to the economies and to their societies where they live. You mentioned the the, the difference between developed and developing nations. Uh, in, in terms of how growing populations or shrinking populations can, can be managed. Um, what, what do we need to zone in on there? I guess all countries face their own demographic challenges in some sense. <clears throat> in countries where growth is, is, is occurring rapidly, now that's where it's driven by a high fertility rate, um, people may desire uh, smaller families and not always have access to the means of achieving that. Uh, so it's important that governments ensure that people have access to the means of, of contraception uh, and birth control that, so that they can choose the size of their families and, and, and determine the number of children that they want to have and when they want to have them. But in other countries where growth is much slower or where it's even gone negative, where the fertility rate is rather low, uh, there are also issues of whether people are able actually to have the number of children that they would like to have. That's to say that many people find it challenging in uh, many more developed countries in Europe, North America, East Asia, where we see these very low fertility rates, it's often a question of people not being able to successfully manage the requirements of family and work at the same time. And it's important for governments in those countries to address those issues and to think about 
how to make it feasible for people to uh, you know, manage and balance, to find a balance between work and family so that they can have the families that they want. In many cases, in those countries, people report having a desire to have more children than what they actually have. Let's talk about life expectancy because that's nine years more than it was in 1990, yeah. a big leap in a relatively short space of time. What's behind yeah. that? If you look across the world, uh, you know, the, the biggest factors have been the reduction of, of child mortality, uh, mortality at younger ages, because that has a big impact on life expectancy. If you, if you save a child uh, who then you know, goes on to live uh, to be 70 years old, you know, you've increased life expectancy by quite a bit. Somebody that might have died very young in life and then they make it through that rough period, that vulnerable period early in life, and then they survive to older ages. You've made quite a big increase in life expectancy. If you um, if you save a 70-year-old who lives then to be 80, you've made a smaller increase in life expectancy because the gain you know has been smaller. But 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 so the biggest gains come by reducing child mortality. And so in the countries where child mortality was still relatively high in 1990, uh, we've made enormous progress in reducing that. That's one area where we've actually. Uh, successfully achieved the, the Millennium Development Goals and the, where the Sustainable Development Goals are somewhat more on track uh, in some of these areas of health uh, that we will achieve them. Uh, and, and so the reduction in child mortality has been very uh, impressive and, and that's, that's driven a lot of the increase. There have been gains over this time period that you mentioned since 1990. Uh, the increase of life expectancy in Sub-Saharan Africa has partly been driven by the, the, the successful uh, uh, reduction of the AIDS epidemic and reduction of deaths in particular. Uh, AIDS is still an issue in those areas, but the, the mortality caused by AIDS has gone down over this time period, and, and that's contributed to the increase. But it's really, it's many factors. In more developed countries over this time period, uh, there have been reductions in cardiovascular diseases that are driven by continuing medical progress and interventions that help with the management of those diseases uh, at older ages. And so it's really across the world, there are, there are a variety of factors that have contributed to the increase of life expectancy. But you're correct, nine years increase in three decades is quite impressive uh, for the world as a whole. And that increase in life expectancy then has an impact, um, impact on so many things, for, from labor markets to, to pension schemes. Um, do you think we need to rethink the, the way those are run? Not all countries have pension schemes, unfortunately. So I mean, our first concern should be ensuring that such systems exist in countries where they don't exist and, and, and to have coverage of those systems so that everyone receives the kind of protection that those provide uh, at older ages. But in countries where such systems exist, then um, there, there's, there are issues of the sustainability of the financing um, in, in light of the increase of life expectancy. So you uh, tend to have more and more people at older ages and, and uh, the balance between people at older ages and people in the working ages uh, becomes more challenging in terms of the, the, the number of people who need to be supported per worker. Uh, but at the same time that you have an increase in the older population in these uh, aging societies, you also have a decrease in the number of children. So you have a reduction in the total, you have a reduction in the dependency at younger ages and increase in the dependency at older ages. Um, but as far as the impact of life expectancy, and the change of life expectancy, I think the way to think about it is that, yes, there's this shift in the population from younger to older ages. You'll have more dependence at older ages, fewer dependence at younger ages as a result. But in general, the life course and how we think about the life course is changing. 
Uh, people stay in school longer, so you know they, they spend more time as children and youth, uh, let's say, before they become active in the labor market. And then it's possible that at the other end of life, later at the end of their careers, uh, people may wish to continue working longer, or there's the possibility that they can because they're healthier. Uh, you know, 65-year-olds in countries today, that may be the retirement age, but many people are very healthy and capable of continuing to work at that age. And um, I think it's important to make it possible for people to continue working as long as they would like uh, and, and as long as they're able to do so. And so we shouldn't be forcing people out of the labor market. We should be, um, you know, enabling them to continue working if that's what they would like to do and if they're still capable of doing that. Many people have contributions to be made beyond that you know, magical retirement age that we've somehow fixated upon this age of 65 in many countries. And yeah. uh, that, that's not the point at which people necessarily lose their productivity or their, their possibility of contributing. So we don't want to lose the contributions of older people. And at the same time, we don't, don't want to force people to continue working if, they, if they're ready for retirement. Speaking of older people, the, the issue of elderly care becomes more acute, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. The care economy has many faces many challenges. We saw that especially during COVID, uh, um, you know, older people who were in, in nursing homes were much, much more vulnerable for various reasons. But the, the care economy has many, there are many issues involved in, 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 in that area. It's, it's often staffed by women and migrants who are relatively underpaid. Um, and, you know, we need to pay attention to that as an institution in terms of how we, uh, how we treat the workers there and how the care is provided how, and what's guaranteed or what's, you know, who is covered by such systems. Uh, there are issues of coverage to ensure that the entire older population or the entire population has access to care when, when needed, but there are also issues of how that industry is structured and, and how it compensates its workers and much of the work is underpaid or informal in various ways or sometimes it's handled you know informally through families um just from often female members of the family who are caregivers so there there are there are various issues around how we structure the care that's provided as the population becomes older and older uh it becomes increasingly important to think about that john let's pause there for a moment but Stay with us as still to come here on the agenda. The population may be rising, but fertility rates are falling. We'll find out what that means for social progress. Deep Dive, a new podcast from CGTN Radio. We go beyond the headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Here, our conversations. Find the Beijing Hour at precisely 6 p.m. Beijing time. Starting on December the 14th, we meet you on podcast and on air every weekday. The Beijing Hour, your window on China and the rest of the world. Welcome back to The Agenda. Let's continue now with our exclusive interview with John Wilmoth, the Director of the United Nations Population Division.
While the world's population is still growing, fertility rates are falling, especially in places like Europe. What does that fall mean for social progress? I guess everyone, you know, historically everyone was happy that fertility was falling in some sense because population was growing so rapidly over the last many decades and people were concerned about global growth and slowing the growth. And, and then the birth rate fell, but it fell so much that in some countries it, it, it went to very low levels and, and the population started aging very rapidly and uh, in some cases started to decline in, in size. And that became a cause of concern for some populations because there was a concern about the balance of the age structure, uh, you know, having more such a growth of the older population relative to the working age population that became a cause of concern. And then in some cases where populations started declining, countries see that as potentially losing influence in the world because their population is, is going to be smaller uh, on a percentage basis uh, in the world than, than it had been. Um, and is that really a, a serious cause of concern? Um, you know, the relative size of countries uh, compared to each other. Well, I think there's a natural tendency to feel that way, but is that really fundamentally a problem for a country like Japan that its population is is is, is becoming smaller? Uh, there, there, there may be some advantages to that. And the question is how to manage that change. Uh, you know, all of these changes in human population, they're things that people can adapt to, societies can adapt to these changes, but the, the challenge is the speed at which they're happening. Um, and so when we kind of go to extremes, that's when, I think that's when people become concerned. And so when populations are growing by more than 1% per year, uh, that's kind of rapid growth and that's a concern. And when populations start declining, if they're really falling rapidly, then that's a cause for concern. But slight changes, slight increase, slight decrease shouldn't be a major cause uh, for concern uh, to, to countries. So I think it's really a question of addressing the extremes. And in some countries, there are what we call very low levels of fertility, where births per woman have fallen below 1.5 and even below 1.2 or even 1.0 uh, births per woman over a lifetime. And that's a very low level. And, and that leads to very rapid aging of the population if it's maintained over several decades and, and eventually to you know, population decrease. So I think there is an interest in attenuating the extremes, let's say, uh, reducing situations, reducing fertility in situations where it's very high and, and, and propping it up or supporting people uh, in, in having children in, in, in countries where the fertility rate is very low. Now, India is expected to pass China from next year and become the world's most populous country. How important yes. is that? You know, I think the importance is mostly symbolic. Um, it's uh, it's it's a gradual change. These these two countries are still very large. They're still you know, much larger than any other countries. They each account for around a fifth of the of the world's population. Um, so, in in practical terms, uh, if one is slightly larger than the other, um, in practical terms, if one is slightly larger than the other, I, I don't think that's a major deal uh, that that doesn't change anything fundamentally in terms of the economy their economies or their societies but I think there is a symbolic importance in terms of uh, which which country is the largest in the world and and the claims that they may make in terms of uh, you know their place in the world and and this is this is this is to be worked out uh, and moving forward we'll, we'll see what, what kind of claims uh, the countries make as a result of this but it's it's, it's not a fundamental issue, it's, it's a symbolic issue in terms of which is the largest population in the world. Something else I wonder if you think will have a, an impact on geopolitics is the average age and how 
there's a huge gap um, between the average age region to region. Is, is that going to shake things up politically? Well, you know, we're at a point where this is, there's this great demographic diversity in the world uh, because of the fact that even if all countries are going through the same process of demographic transition towards longer lives and smaller families, um, they're going through it at different points in time. So there's this great diversity in the current situation of those countries. But while there may be a difference in the average age today, the trend for all regions of the world is the same in that the average age is going up. And um, it, will, it will go up more rapidly in countries where it is the lowest. And I think over time, we will see a convergence in, in these average ages. I think we're at a point where we have almost maximum demographic diversity in the world right now because countries are at different stages of going through this demographic transition. And that's led to a lot of variation across the world in, in terms of the type of age distribution, the speed of growth, and various demographic indicators that are quite variable across the world. But since all populations are going through this similar process and kind of going toward a similar endpoint of uh, smaller families and longer life expectancies, that there won't be as much difference in the future is what I'm saying. I think that we will see some convergence uh, over time in the average ages. There, there is quite yeah. a big gap though. I mean, if you look Sub-Saharan Africa, it's around about 17 years old. In Europe, just over 41 years old. I know you're saying that they're all gonna even out. That's a big gap. No, I'm talking about evening out over many decades. I mean, by the end of the century. So it's true that in our kind of current time frame, this is a very big difference and it's not something that's going to disappear soon. And it, it, it does have implications, obviously, in terms of the labor market over the next few decades and, and the, the, the requirements of uh, finding jobs for those people, uh, young, for the young people. Um, it, it will have implications, there's no doubt. Uh, the difference in, in the age distribution that, that we observe right now, that will add pressure uh, to, to young people who may want to migrate from uh, countries of Africa to Europe, for example. I know that's a cause of, of concern in many countries in Europe, but uh, um, that demographic pressure is going to be there for sure. It's going to uh, provide a push and a pull uh, in terms of, uh, I mean, there are demographic push factors and pull factors, there are economic push factors and pull factors, but I'm just speaking, I'm just speaking about the demographic ones uh, right now. Yeah. And, and just in terms of just the sheer size of the, of the youth population in, in many countries, that provides a certain push where they may not have opportunities for jobs in their countries and they may, they may look abroad. But also there's a great pull from the fact that in richer countries there are oppor opportunities and people see those opportunities and they, and they, 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 they go for them. They, they, they migrate because they have heard stories of their friends and family who have moved abroad and who have made fortunes and send money home, sent money home. They see examples of this. And so, of course, naturally, they want to uh, take off and explore and see what opportunities are out there for them. So there will definitely be both demographic push and pull factors. Uh, the, the pull factors, the demographic pull factors in, in, in developed countries, the fact that the populations are aging and they, they, they need workers. So there's a pull, uh, just a demographic pull in terms of uh, the, the, the shrinking labor force in, in some European countries and some other developed countries. That provides a pull uh, in yeah. terms of just needing people, needing laborers, workers. John Wilmoth, Director of the UN Population Division, thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up on a future agenda, 
COP27 is over, but what has it achieved? Are we any closer to saving the planet in the wake of Shamal Sheikh? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye. Dunhuang, situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Love Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on major podcast platforms. Why we love Dunhuang? You will have your answers.